Akwabedin here, and you are listening to the Millennial African Podcast. In our first episode of the three-part series of King Leopold II and the Bongo Free State, we looked at how the king wanted Belgium to be a world leader like England and France by owning territories. We looked at how he convinced the explorer Henry Morton Stanley to map out the Congo and get chiefs to unknowingly give over their land. The episode ended with how in the 1890s he officially closed the Congo off from international trade right when there was a demand for rubber which was abundantly growing in the wild in the Congo. In this episode we are going to look at his infamous greedy rule and the first public military he used. Let's jump right into it by starting with the latter. I will interchangeably refer to the force public as the force or as FP. As it is, even in recent times, to gain control over a group of people, one needs a police or military force. The Belgian king created the force public, a paramilitary police force. Well, how did he do this? To get started, he appointed a minister of interior for the Congo. This minister taxed a captain from the Belgian army to recruit both Belgian and non-commissioned officers to make up the solely European force public officers. Mercenaries from other European countries, mostly drawn by the prospect of wealth and adventure of service in Africa, were also recruited. For the span of the king's rule in the Congo, that is from 1886 to 1908, the number of officers were approximately 648 Belgians, 112 Italians, 53 Danes, 47 Swedes, 26 Norwegians, and smaller numbers from other countries such as the UK and the United States. Serving under these European officers were an ethnically mixed African infantry, you know, the foot soldiers, many of whom were assumed to have been conscripted from parts of the Congo itself, and some from Zanzibar and Nigeria. I am elaborating the FP because it is key we understand who they were to understand how they ruled the Congolese people. To justify the existence of the paramilitary force and as a way to promote the civilized work he is doing in the Congo, the Belgian king taxed the force with stopping Arab slave traders who for centuries had been capturing and selling Central Africans as slaves. That was the slave trade that existed before, during and after the European slave trade. It isn't talked about much because of the 400-year intensity of the transatlantic slave trade. So note that in this time, that is in the 1880s, slavery had already been abolished in Europe. Now that he had the fighting power, the land and an international recognition of his rule, how did the king make himself rich? So to afford taking resources out of the Congo, Leopold gave out parts of the Congo to private companies as concessions. Companies were used a lot by European countries in running and managing resources in Africa. These companies, just like today, were basically privately owned enterprises that would finance the operations and then pay a commission to the colonial or ruling country that gave them the concession. You know, Bernard Boy, the Nigerian pop star, I think mentions one such company in one of his songs on the African Giant album where he said Nigeria started off as a, a business transaction between a company and the British government. In the Congo Free State, these companies were, you know, under no judicial review whatsoever. So now, the king controls the Congo Free State. He has a private army and has given out districts as concessions to companies. The companies were initially dealing ex- and exporting ivory, but they were, you know, gearing up to harvest the vast wild-growing rubber plants as the rubber demand increased in Europe and America. The question now was where to find the labor to harvest the wild rubber. You know, unlike the initial exploratory phase 
for the Congo, where explorers with guns would round up men, chain them together, and put them to work as porters, rubber harvesting would mean people must disperse through the rainforest and often climb trees to access the rubber sap. Also, there was going to be competition soon if the Belgian king didn't act quickly. His main competition was cultivated rubber that was then being planted in Latin America and Asia, knowing that once those reached maturity, the price for rubber on the international market would drop. This did indeed happen, but by then the Congo had the wild rubber boom near, that had lasted nearly two decades. The interior minister by the direction of the king assigned quotas to districts. These were broken down into quotas for villages in the districts. And if a company managed that district, they could use the FBI, uh, that's the paramilitary force, however they saw fit to entice the villagers to meet the quota. So it all fell on the young men to fill the quotas on behalf of their villagers. Their mode of collection was basically, you know, to find the plant, cut the stem of that plant and mount a collection bowl, a collecting bowl. The collectors would find dozens of these trees tap and wait for them to fill up. Then they would have to carry it from wherever they collected it to a collection station that's usually closed by the village monitored by a company agent. The collector rubber was then transported to the coast and shipped out of the Congo to Belgium. With still increasing demand for rubber, but increasing scarcity for the raw rubber plants, the harvesters had to travel further into the jungle to find more trees to collect. As time went on, women and children were forced to join the men who then would spend multiple days in the forest searching for and tapping the plant. It became so difficult to find rubber that entire villages were forced into the jungle by the FP to find rubber and to harvest, then to harvest it, to find a plant and to harvest it. Now, this is where things turned out for the worse. In order to continue forcing villages to meet the quotas, the FPs were promoted when they made the villagers go out and work. Officers also got other incentives. This had already been done with the ivory trade, you know, where agents and soldiers were rewarded according to the amount they turned in. In 1903, one particular productive agent received a commission about eight times his annual salary. Yeah, eight times. To maximize profits and avoid wastage of everything except Congolese lives, the foot soldiers were made to account for every bullet fired by showing proof of damage caused. So what they did was to cut off the head of a person they had shot as proof. To make things less barbaric, they decided to cut off the hands instead. If for some reason one FP soldier wanted to force villagers to go tapping rubber, they would shoot a few people, cut off their hands as evidence of their hard work. This action normalized amputation and it made it a form of punishment. FP officers and soldiers would cut off the hands of children or infants as punishment for the father's or brother's inability to harvest his assigned rubber sap quota. The violence didn't end there. I mean, in a community where this sort of evil is allowed, what stops officers from doing whatever they wanted if they only answered to themselves? In response to increasing violence, whole villages would up and relocate at night. I mean, if the officers didn't know where the villagers were, they couldn't force the villagers to work, right? Well, that worked for a while until the officers got smart and started posting for soldiers to monitor villagers. People who managed to escape were always on the run trying to avoid being discovered. In an account for an inquiry later, there were narrated instances of one officer's method. The officer would arrive with soldiers in canoes at the village. The inhabitants who saw them would bolt on their arrival. The soldiers would then disembark the boat, attack and seize women, children or chiefs as hostages. They would loot, take livestock and food stuff. The officer and soldiers would hold the hostages at ransom for demanded rubber and even when the rubber was delivered, the officer would then negotiate to sell the hostages to the families for more livestock. This was that officer's strategy to get his rubber quota and feed his soldiers as well. 
Every company post in the rubber areas had a stockade. Um, those wooden cages that look like goat pens, you know, like the one that Jamie Lannister was kept in right before he lost his hand in Game of Thrones. Every post had one of those for holding hostages. If you were a male village or native and you resisted the order to collect rubber, it could mean the amputation or death of your wife or child, or if you were lucky, they would be held in these stockades while you were off looking for rubber to harvest. The hostages could die anyway because there was always limited food and the conditions were always harsh. An FBI officer called George Bryce in his November 22, 1985 journal entry wrote, The woman taken during the raid at Angutra are causing me no end of trouble. All the soldiers want one. The sentries who are supposed to wash them unchanged the prettiest ones and raped them. See, these sentries were not regular soldiers. They were often private military groups for, for the company. And at the peak of the rubber collection, the whole process was basically militarized. You know, false public garrisons were scattered everywhere, supplying their firepower to the companies under contract whenever the companies needed them. In addition, the sentries of the companies would join the FP soldiers to subdue villages and, and capture hostages. Wherever rubber grew, the population was tightly controlled. Company agents would have to give you permits to leave your village and visit a friend in another village. And in some instances, villagers were made to wear a numbered metal disc attached to a cord around their neck so that their company agents and FP soldiers could monitor who had met their quota for what period. Now, let's also look a little bit into the FP foot soldiers. I know it's always difficult to believe that one can be so violent to their own people. There's always different sides to any story. As mentioned earlier, most of the officers in the FP were white, mostly Belgian. All the foot soldiers were black, initially from British West African colonies like Zanzibar and Nigeria. Eventually, the majority of the regular soldiers were from the Congo. Most were conscripted, and even those who volunteered did so for safety. As reported by one soldier, it is better to be part of the hunters than the hunted. The working conditions of the soldiers were bad. They were ill-paid, ill-fed, and occasionally whipped. A lot would desert and be recaptured, beaten and forced to rejoin the force. As a way to prevent dissertation, the force would send conscripts far from their homes. I mean, if you look at a map of Congo, you have an idea how far your posting could be. This then meant that when the soldier finished their compulsory seven-year service, if they were allowed to return home, it would take them several months. The soldiers' frustrations usually boiled into mutinies both large and small. The first significant one was recorded in 1895 at the Lualubog camp in central Congo. The base was under a notorious Belgian commander called Matthew Pelzer, who was known to routinely order 125 lashes as punishment. Some soldiers revolted, wounded Matthew, and escaped. These soldiers attacked other posts and gathered more soldiers. The group then fled into the forest where they lived and organized assaults on other FP posts. For more than half a year, the rebels controlled most of the Kasai region. In the bush, they split into small groups, 
spreading out over a broad area and successfully evading or fighting off a long series of heavily armed expeditions against them. A year later, FP officers estimated that there were still 400 to 500 rebels at large recruiting new members and allying themselves with local chiefs against the state. The more I read about this group and their techniques, the more I was convinced that their tactics were guerrilla warfare. The ant credited, and the phrase was made popular by the American Vietnam War anyway. Two years after the first in 1897, there was another large mutiny in the northern parts of the Congo with about 3,000 soldiers and an equal number of porters and auxiliary. It was these rebels who in April 1897 captured a traveling group with a priest. The rebels spared the priest even though some of them had sworn to kill every white person they saw. After feeding the priest, they presented him with ivory to make up for his goose they had confiscated. They told the priest how Belgian officers treated them like animals, that they weren't paid for months and soldiers and chiefs alike were flogged and hung for the slightest offense. They spoke of one white officer who shot 60 soldiers in a single day because the soldiers refused to work on a Sunday. And another officer who with his own hands poured pepper and salt on the bloody wounds made by the whip and ordered the sick soldiers from his post to be thrown alive into the Lualaba, the Lualaba River. It was these soldiers and porters who eventually withdrew into German territory now Rwanda and Burundi, where they gave up their arms in return for rights to settle. King Leopold, of course, never proclaimed any of these ever happened, and when anyone made such charges, authorities in Brussels denied them. But out in the field, it was the order of the day. Instructions on taking hostages were even given in the semi-official instruction book given to officers and company agents. The manual's five volumes covered everything from keeping servants obedient to taking hostages and to proper military artillery salutes. According to the manual, in Africa, taking prisoners is an easy thing to do. For if the natives hide, they will not go far from their village and must come to look for food in the gardens which surround it. In watching these carefully, you will be certain of capturing people after a brief delay. When you feel you have enough captives, you should choose among them an old person, preferably an old woman. Make her a present and send her to the chief to begin negotiations. The chief, wanting to see his people set free, will usually decide to send representatives. Mm -hmm.